When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 28th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell's decision to suspend Ravens running back Ray Rice for two games, and whether that suspension reveals that the NFL is soft on domestic violence. We'll also discuss the controversy at the top of the Major League Baseball draft after high schooler Brady Aiken became the first number one overall pick in 30 years not to sign, and the team that took him, the Houston Astros, has... In the words of Sports Illustrated, been accused of acting unethically at best and villainously at worst. We'll then chat about a Tour de France in which a bunch of the top contenders crashed out, and an Italian one for the first time in 16 years. And we'll be joined by Catherine Bertine, the American cyclist and journalist who launched a successful push to get women cyclists on the same course as the men for the first time in 25 years. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about arm folding. Ah, uh, arm folding. Uh, Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but joining me as always from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. How are your arms today, Mike? Uh, they're what's between akimbo and straight up and down. They're semi-kimbo. This, akimbo is one of those weird words, right? It's, there are no gradations of akimbo. We should have a specific word and for every degree. And it's always arms. Yeah. I'm standing with my legs akimbo. <laughs> Do you think Akimbo Slice would have been a more successful fighter if he had if he had embraced the Akimbo rather than just yeah. Kimbo? 
Well, maybe that wouldn't even be his stance, but it would throw all his literal-minded competitors off. We know nothing of this guy <laughs> but for the fact that he attacks in the akimbo position. <laughs> uh, filling in for Stefan this week and already making akimbo-related jokes. <laughs> Can't stop him. Our, it's our special guest panelist, Jason Gay of The Wall Street Journal. How are you, Jason? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Sure. I uh, noted that um, in case people are having a Scrabble deficiency this week. You have used the word Scrabble twice in your Wall Street Journal columns. I don't know if you recall, but the exact phrases were drunk on rum Scrabble and play Scrabble with dolphins. Yeah, the the, the two most natural phrases you see with Scrabble. <laughs> yeah. Both. It's almost a cliche at this point, Jason. Yeah, I, I hate mean, to call you out. Yeah, it's kind of it is a little bit of a cliche. And also, <laughs> also, also, drunken dolphin scrabble is just a whole other thing. Yeah. It is. That's just hackery. That's you the never stance that you have to use to beat Kimbo Slice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's start with the NFL. And um, five months ago now, on February 19th, TMZ released surveillance footage from a casino in Atlantic City. It showed Ravens running back Ray Rice dragging his then fiance Janae Palmer, out of an elevator while she appeared to be unconscious. In March, Rice was indicted for third-degree assault for allegedly punching Palmer and rendering her unconscious. You saw the tail end in the video of, of her being dragged, but the punch, uh, the supposed punch, was not seen. Uh, Rice and Palmer then got married, and Rice was allowed to enter a pretrial intervention program for first-time offenders that will likely lead to the charges against him being cleared from his record. At a cringeworthy press conference in May, uh, the running back said, sometimes in life you will fail, but I won't call myself a failure. And then amazingly, failure is not getting knocked down. It's not getting up. The Ravens' Twitter account also highlighted a quote from Palmer in which she apologized for, quote, the role I played in the incident that night. Uh, finally, five months later, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, suspended Rice for the first two games of the 2014 season. He said, the league is an entity that depends on integrity and in the confidence of the public, and we simply cannot tolerate conduct that endangers others or reflects negatively on our game. Um, Jason, it's always polite to go to the guest first. A lot of people have been comparing this two-game suspension to, uh, for example, the six games that Will Hill, the Ravens' uh, new safety, got for uh, smoking marijuana, third-time offender in the NFL's drug uh, policy. And so when you're suspending guys all the time, as the NFL seems to do, these are inevitable comparisons. So two games, can we fairly interpret that as the NFL and Roger Goodell saying, you know, domestic violence, woman dragged unconscious from elevator, that's, you know, worth two games. That's worth a third of, um, you know, this marijuana suspension. Sure. I mean, to back it up a little bit, the NFL has also made clear, and this is something that really happened under Goodell's watch, that it would intervene and it would act uh, without necessarily waiting for the legal system to catch up or adjudicate a case. And we saw that in the case of Michael Vick. We saw that with Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers a couple seasons ago. Um, the expectation being that the NFL was not necessarily bound to the way the legal system played out. And so it was a real stunner to see the mere two-game suspension. And the kind of blowback that they've received on this was very sort of, I mean, the NFL is under siege on a myriad of fronts, but it's sort of uncharacteristic of the Goodell era. 
because people had assumed that this was a guy who was going to make decisions and not sort of waiting around for wherever the chips went. Right. So Goodell's brand, and in fact his history, has been to use his power as a blunt instrument. He's a hanging judge. So you'd figure, why not use it in this case? And it did reveal, uh, I could understand why everyone rushed to conclude they don't get the issue of domestic violence. And you add into it not only all the other issues that... Everyone has its own case, but there are a bunch of other guys who are facing this. And you add into it the ridiculousness of the press conference. And if you want to be really accepting and people say the wrong things, fine. He probably shouldn't have said that you get knocked down and get up again. That was incredibly tone deaf. But then for the Ravens PR people to tweet it. it, And and that press conference, by the way, happened at 3 o'clock on a Friday before, I think it was Memorial Day weekend. So, like, you add it all up. There's not one notion that the NFL at all understands this issue. And there are many notions that the NFL wants to get credit for wearing pink on certain days, even though they don't funnel all the money or enough of the money to actual uh, breast cancer research. Single-digit percentages. Yeah, and and you add it all up. What's the evidence? Oh, no, here's here's some tangible stuff I could point to that the NFL is not in the Pleistine era when it comes to domestic abuse. Right. And, you know, we are living, again, you know, the NFL uh, is facing considerable heat on issues of player safety. There are the lawsuits. There are the collective bargaining concerns. So we are not living in the era of the sort of invincible NFL. But there is this assumption that the NFL is the most modern and the most with it of all of our major professional sports. And I can't think of a case which was mishandled from start to finish. I mean, this has just been a symphony of wrong notes from the beginning. And let's not also forget the Baltimore Ravens had an opportunity here to also act, which they did not. Yeah. You know, it's just a disgrace all around. Well, let's just think about it from Goodell's perspective, because for all that you think of him, he is not a stupid man. And so that's why I think it's hard to understand why um, the suspension came down the way it did, because the NFL must have known that a two-game suspension here would be perceived as extremely lenient. As you said, Jason, when Ben Roethlisberger, um, he was cleared, um, you know, of criminal charges in that, you know, alleged sexual assault rape case, but he was still suspended for six games. Um, It was eventually reduced to four. And when that happened, Goodell said, the personal conduct policy makes clear that that I may impose discipline even where the conduct does not result in conviction of a crime. So there's precedent here for, um, you know, not necessarily saying, oh, well, you know, he went in this diversion program and, you know, the legal system has decided that, you know, this is going to be cleared from his record. So we'll clear it from his record, too. He's laid down the markers. It's like Terrell Pryor gets five games for taking impermissible benefits when he was in college before he even had anything to do with the NFL. And so Goodell just has this long track record, harsh suspension after harsh suspension after harsh suspension. Can either of you guys think of what he or the league could possibly have been thinking here? Yes, yes. All the evidence points to the fact that they don't get that domestic violence is in a different category. They don't get that it's different from... So wait, it's worse than taking impermissible NCAA benefits? The way I see the world, in fact, it is. You know... I know Ray Rice. I don't know no Ray Rice. I've interviewed him a few times, and he's a charismatic guy, and he seemed contrite, and I'm not saying that he's not contrite in that instance. I think that someone like Goodell, who probably has a very 
outdated mindset on this issue probably took into account that um, they got married afterwards and that, you know, the victim more than forgives, stands by the husband. I, I, so for that to be very compelling to you, you maybe you have to be a bit ignorant about what the real issues of domestic violence right. are. And there's no evidence that they get domestic violence because the way they talk to their rookies, I think they see domestic violence as a societal problem that a small percentage of NFL guys have to deal with. And maybe they don't want to give extra credence to the idea that domestic violence is our problem as opposed to a problem of the guys who happen to play for our teams. And maybe they thought that if he gave a decent suspension, then they'd have a headache every other time someone is a accused of um, hitting a girlfriend. I so do have what? To, but yeah, so I, what? I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's maybe the explanation. I do have to say that the whole solution, the, the cure for this would have been a four-game suspension instead of a two-game suspension. No one would even be really discussing it. And so I think what that represents is more in line with the other discipline the NFL has meted out. But really... A small inconvenience to the Ravens versus a slightly less small inconvenience to the well, Ravens. Jason, can I jump in and ask you a question? I feel like a lot of people, you know, myself included, have been very critical of Goodell for even imposing any kind of extrajudicial punishment in the first place. As you get into this weird area where the NFL is, you know, interpreting legal decisions or the sure. lack of legal decisions. Sure. And then, or in some cases, the lack of information. Sure. And, you know, that's we haven't seen the rest of... Um, the surveillance video, you know, a lot of us are commenting on what we saw in this snippet and what, you know, we believe to have happened. It's possible the NFL has more information. It's possible that the NFL doesn't. But is it, can we be consistent and, and not hypocritical to say on the one hand, it seems wrong that Roger Goodell is kind of sitting from on high and decreeing, you know, you're suspended for four games for doing this thing that has nothing to do with football. You're suspended for six. And on the other hand, say, like, this suspension seems way too lenient. Right, right. I I mean, I think that they sort of set themselves up for this kind of disaster. And also, I think people are taking exception to the past decision-making and hypocrisy that's shown in this. But also... It seems abundantly clear that this kind of decision is happening in a vacuum, that were people from the outside brought in. And by the way, the NFL is not alone in their kind of meek handling of the issue of domestic violence. This is something that plagues the justice system as a whole. This is something that other employers have struggled with. This is something that uh, is a societal issue. The NFL is not the only place that is having this kind of struggle. But it's because of the fact that they have positioned themselves and they are such, again, a brand conscious organization in which people are suspended for one game for the violence that happens in the game, that people get in trouble for spiking footballs for too long or any kind of demonstration or all kinds of character issues become the NFL's purview. The fact that they had a situation and this is, you know, you talk, we talked a little bit about what the NFL knows and not the optics of this from it, whether it's the, the, that horrible video that people saw to the details of the case that later came out and to what Rice pled to. It just seems like an indefensible position by Goodell. And Mike, um, Justin Peters of Slate did research in 2012. The 21 of the 32 NFL teams at that time had somebody on their roster with a domestic violence or sexual assault, assault charge on his record. You mentioned the breast cancer month, and obviously breast cancer is a very you know important cause and you know commending the NFL 
Uh, we should commend the NFL for raising money and awareness for it. But it's also just as a brand exercise, the obvious, like, safest thing that they could endorse, you know, wearing pink and we're against breast cancer. Who's for breast cancer? Obviously, if the NFL came out with the same amount of, you know, branding and fervor around putting, you know, a stop to domestic violence and sexual assault, that would actually seem appropriate given the league's history. And it would mean so much more as opposed to just dealing with it on a one-off basis or not really dealing with it at all. To w- right. And the answer to that is, ha, how could they possibly do that? And then every time you do that, you just scan through the rosters and say, hey, what about all these guys? You people are hypocrites. Yeah. So they have to get out of the uh, idea that they would be accused of hypocrisy. Now, back to your question. Are you being, are we being hypocritical if we criticize Goodell for uh, meeting out justice too harshly? And then in this instance, we're saying that is the one instance he showed mercy. No, we're not. Because the hypocrisy isn't, we who criticize Goodell for that, and you especially, Josh, with the Saints, for instance, you're not thinking of, well, here's what I want from a commissioner. I want less justice or more justice. I want, I either want consistently lenient punishments or consistently harsh punishments. You want fairness. You want punishments that fit the crime. And so when you're criticizing Goodell for harsh punishments, yes, they were too harsh, but they also, in some instances, like with the Saints, seem not to fit the crime. And this totally doesn't fit the crime, especially as measured by his reputation of always only bringing down the hammer. Yeah, it's very true. Should we um, quickly note the comments by Stephen A. Smith of ESPN, who said, you know, Obviously, we shouldn't blame the victims of domestic violence, but I am now going to blame the victims of domestic violence by saying, you know, women need to think about uh, provoking men and and how to avoid doing that and and kind of understanding that if uh, an incident like that happens, you know, what your role could be in stopping that. And the and that's obviously disturbing on its face, but so much more disturbing because in the comments that I cited before with Janae Palmer with fiance and now wife saying, you know, apologizing at the press conference for her part and the Ravens tweeting that out um, as if it was, you know, some noteworthy thing that should be highlighted. It's just that goes beyond tone deafness. And I think that because it's somebody whose profession is talking and having opinions about issues, we should in this case, I think, hold him to a much higher standard than we did Ray Rice in that press conference because, you know, he's a r- running back. We can't him- expect him to say the right thing at the right time. Yeah, and I think that uh, Stephen A. Smith could have said, look, I my job is to have verbal diarrhea and sometimes I get it wrong. But then his second and third iterations and cuts at that were just similarly incoherent or maybe, to view it less charitably, coherent and disgusting. I'd like it whenever somebody comes out and says, I need to explain myself further and they're on television for two hours a day. When you're in that predicament where you're actually getting the opportunity of two live hours of television every day and then you're like, wait, wait, you didn't understand what I had to say. It's like the dude who works in the soapbox factory claiming he needs another soapbox. Well, he is supposedly going to talk about his words on today's episode of First Take, which I think is is further, you know, an embarrassment and disgusting by ESPN to say, you know, we're going to wait all weekend. We're not really going to say anything, but tune into our show to, uh, you know, listen to 
our apology for uh, Stephen A. Smith's disgusting right, comments. Right, I will not right. be tuning in. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, is like the sports mediocrity as we know it, mediocre, mediocre mediocrity, I mean, is it built for this kind of conversation? I, uh, the thing that I find is so fraught with hazard is the idea that you can somehow take a serious social issue like this, a very disturbing moment in somebody's life, and somehow funnel it through the same template you have to talk about Johnny Manziel on an inflatable swan, or David Ortiz and David Price, or Derek Jeter, or spelling Troy Tulowitzki's name wrong. Is that just too hazardous material for the environment to handle? Well, certain certain precincts of the environment, I think, could take a shot at it. But uh, actually, in my after ball, <laughs> I will be commenting on local sports radio's handling of this and the uh, and the Tony Dungy comments. Just to give you a preview, Michael K of the local ESPN radio station was fierily vehement against the NFL. I mean, ranting, raving. And yet in the course of that, and I think because of what you're saying, because of the environment and, you know, the main thing you should be doing is questioning if that middle reliever should have been pulled. Like the nonsense, just the nonsense that spews forth. I guess if you hire a bunch of people, especially sports yakkers, who, and their job requirement is to get really, really incensed when Adam Wainwright grooved a fastball in an exhibition game, you can't expect those people to have any uh, insight or perspective or context for something real. All right, let's uh, stop for a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com slash hangupplus. I've touted our Orange is the New Black podcast hosted by the great Willa Paskin. Uh, You've also got the bonus podcast segments on this and other shows. What I do not think I've mentioned before is that Slate Plus members can watch live video of uh, select episodes of the Slate Political Gab Fest. They did one last week as they recorded the show. They're also going to experiment with taking questions live as they do the podcast. What do you think about that, Mike Pesca? I think I think it could work. It could be dangerous, especially <laughs> given the environment and uh, their stances on Adam Wainwright's fastball. I, I couldn't agree more. Sign up for Slate Plus. You can uh, ask David Plotz about Adam Wainwright. He, Plotz hates baseball. That might throw him off for the entire show. Do you think he hates um, Pablo Sandoval? Kung Fu Panda definitely, definitely yeah. hates that guy. All right, slate.com slash hangupplus to sign up for the Slate Plus experience. Let's now move on to a story that would be huge news if it was happening in the NBA or the NFL. But since it's baseball, it doesn't seem like uh, this has gotten much mainstream coverage. It doesn't seem like anyone outside of diehard fans really cares. Jason Gay might say that that uh, means that uh, the mainstream coverage is getting it right. But we can get to that in a little bit. Um, but I'll... I just want to gird against draft creep, okay? I'm All a right. little concerned about the idea of draft creep. The That's NFL fair draft... girding. Fair, very fair girding. I need to gird. All right, but let me give some backstory for the people. Uh, The number one pick in the recent Major League Baseball draft. He's like the Andrew Wiggins of baseball. Context, context, got it. Um, He's a high school pitcher named Brady Aiken. Sort of like how LeBron James was drafted out of high school. Um, So Aiken was all set to sign a deal with the Houston Astros for six and a half million bucks. Uh, Then he took a physical with the Astros. It revealed supposedly, reportedly, that his ulnar collateral ligament was smaller than normal. Now, you might have heard of the UCL. It's the elbow ligament that gets repaired in Tommy John surgery. So the Astros kind of freaked out. Smaller UCL, who knows what that means. The team pulls its initial offer to the 17-year-old Aiken. 
they revise it downward to a pittance uh, $3.2 million. That's the minimum <laughs> amount. Not enough to get off the couch. No, not for the top player in the baseball draft. Um, it's the minimum amount they needed to bid in order to get a compensation pick next year in case Aiken didn't sign. Indeed, Aiken does not sign. His advisor, Casey Close, is pissed. He says Aiken's doctors all say he's not injured. He's throwing like 97. Um, but there's more collateral damage here uh, in addition to the ulnar collateral ligament. Aiken was being quote-unquote advised by Casey Close, but he may be ineligible to play college baseball now because he enlisted the services of an agent, uh, which is not allowed by the NCAA. Of course you wouldn't want an agent negotiating a multi-million dollar contract. And because they didn't sign Aiken, the Astros lose out on the $7.9 million that Major League Baseball had allotted them to sign the number one pick. Uh, the Astros had planned to give Aiken just $6.5 million, give the rest of the money to their fifth-round pick, Jacob Nix. Aiken didn't sign. So the Astros pulled their contract offer to Nix. He's also represented by Casey Close. Casey Close is doubly pissed. They're filing a grievance with the MLBPA. They want everyone to be declared free agents. Come on. That was a fascinating several minutes the of exposition. Russian novel. I, I know. I find this really interesting, Mike. You've got... Um, pitcher injuries, which we've talked about a bunch, and the inability of teams to know whether you know pitching prospects are actually going to make it through undamaged through the minor leagues. You've got a team that we actually praised several weeks ago for acting extremely analytically. In this case, seeming like to act just entirely as if their front office was run by Spock, like no human emotion at all, just like cold, cold, hard numbers. And then just the the pure intrigue of the number one pick in the draft, the top player in, in the sport in the amateur ranks, just getting kind of jerked around and not uh, being in a limbo state right now. So do you think that this is an interesting story that we should devote a segment on the podcast Hang Up and Listen to? I don't know. Jason, what do you think? I think that was a great summary, yeah. Josh. And uh... We're done. Let's move on. <laughs> No, I mean, it is a remarkable story, and there is a great deal of intrigue. I want to call attention to one thing, though, that I think I knew, semi-knew, but just to read about it in practice here, the NCAA allows agents to advise college prospects, or, or rather professional baseball prospects who are mulling a choice between professional baseball and college, but they can't actually sign them as agents. Right. This is what the this is the that's correct. They've all so, agreed to. So Casey Close is not an agent in this. In this, uh, <laughs> but how does that he's work? He's a close family friend. He's a longtime is friend. Aiken in the kitchen, and he's like, "Can we call Casey again?" I mean, we've called him four times. Like, is it like you know when I sign up for like you know training programs for cycling? You know, I get three phone calls a month to my coach. If I want the premium package, <laughs> it's six calls. Right. And if he signs up for Close Plus, he gets his agent's advice without any commercials. Like, I, I mean, it's just a remarkable double talk. Casey Close was described in the Chronicle as one of the most decorated agents in baseball. Don't know what that means. I also know that he's married to uh, Gretchen Carlson from the Fox Morning Show. Oh, really? That, that comes into play. So wait a minute. Casey Close's wife and you have a common employer. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's fraught <laughs> right. with conflict. Yeah. We're going to have to have Jason recuse himself. I'll just monologue for the next 10 minutes. But can we just talk also, uh, I want to mention another great moment in ulnar collateral ligament history, uh -huh. which I want to call your attention to, and I want you guys to guess the major leaguer. There was some sort of precedent for this. 1996. I know it well. Baseball draft. A young gentleman out of, out of Nashville. Yeah. 
was discovered by the Texas Rangers who drafted him and offered him a $800,000 signing bonus <laughs> and a subsequent evaluation discovered to not have a UCL. Uh, and then that offer was revised to $75,000. This gentleman would go on to win a Cy Young Award. Who am I? And also recently authored the children's book, which I have read to my ch- children, Knuckleball Ned. It is R.A. Dickey. I think that the... Uh, I think that the thickness of one's ulnar collateral ligament is directly proportional to one's signing bonus. Now, there is another question. You dropped the phrase there, Josh, that in a, they drafted him and a subsequent MRI. So why don't these guys, I mean, with the NBA... Refuse. No, they, he was their property. Why don't they do MRIs before the draft is my question. And it has been explained, well... When if they do if they agreed to MRIs before the draft, it could only hurt. It could never help, right? The only guy it would help is maybe someone who is seen as being damaged goods, and you do the MRI and it looks good. But that what guy if he was found to have anyway. two UCLs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy's like an extra. He has an extra thing. Double UCL. bonus. So it has been explained to me that the reason they don't do MRIs before these, you know, for these assets worth millions of dollars, that no one would agree to it because it could only hurt them. However. There are slots. There are draft picks. It might hurt individuals, but overall, someone's going to get drafted number one. So I don't understand why. I mean, I think the league should have some sort of, I don't know if this gets into medical rights or something, but they should have some sort of program where you MRI, I don't know, 50, 100, whatever it is, number of players. Because overall, the the pool, the pot, that's why you have the slot system. That's not going to diminish. So maybe if one guy gets hurt, overall they don't get hurt. And the agents in general, um, you know, they represent... They represent everyone. An individual agent may get hurt, but if it's not up to him to take the guy out of my proposed pre-MRI plan, then every, everyone should be fine. Well, that's one thing that's, I think, definitely going to come out of this is that there's going to be some sort of medical combine um, the way that they have a combine in the NFL and the NBA before the draft where um, guys will get screened, as you suggested, Mike. But I think the bigger story here is that the Astros, this team that's supposedly so smart that has this GM Jeff Lunau just cocked this up in so many different ways and just showed that, you know, the smartest team, I think, has the ability to probably be more stupid than any other just because you can sort of outsmart yourself on the, on the next level. Like right. they had this whole thing planned out where we're going to take this high school pitcher number one. It's not often done because it's a it's a high risk. But if we take the high school pitcher number one, we can give him less money but in acknowledgement of that risk. And then we'll take that extra savings because MLB has the slotting system. We'll take this, you know, $1.4 million and we'll offer it to guys down the line in the draft and be able to buy guys out of their college baseball and pay them a little bit more. But what they hadn't considered was we have done no medical research on this guy. Um, We don't, they didn't take into account the possibility that they would find something that would make them just not want to sign Brady Aiken. And so then they get to this situation and they not only end up not signing him, but they don't end up signing Jacob Nix. There's a guy later in the draft, Mac Marshall, another high school pitcher, and they had wanted to allocate some bonus money to him. They didn't sign him either. So just with this one decision where they're like, we're going to be so clever and take this high school pitcher, they basically screwed their entire organization and, you know, seem to have alienated this guy. It doesn't seem like, you know... But Josh, yeah, go ahead. beyond that, wasn't it, you know, beyond just messing up the Aiken deal, 
there's the, you know, this is where the alleged nefariousness comes in, is the idea that they then acted in such a way to try to end their relationship with Aiken so they could maneuver to get a pick next year. Right. Well, they offer him the minimum amount because if you don't offer, like, at, at least 40% of the slot value, you can't get a compensation pick. And so, yeah, it seemed like what they were doing was um, lowballing him so Giving that they could get— Giving him an offer to refuse. Right. So they could get, you know, the second pick in next year's draft. And maybe they decided at a certain point that, um, you know, the birds in the bush— Next year, the two the two first round picks in the bush next year are better than than the bird in the hand. Which I don't know if we think that's unethical or not. Am I wrong to interpret that as well? How bad could the ligament be? They still offered him three million. They were kind of willing to throw away three million uh, for this for this extra consideration. Well, that's the thing that doesn't really make sense. Is that um, and Baseball Prospectus had the best article about this. Jason said that he felt like he had just earned a four-year college degree after reading it. It was an amazing story. It it covered this from every angle. What um, they noted, which I think is correct, is they eventually got back up to $5 million um, in their offer, reportedly. And so the difference of, um, you know, one and a half million between that and the initial offer, was was that really that, um, you know, significant? Was it worth it to the Astros over for one and a half million dollars to lose... Brady Aiken, the top high school player who everybody says is like, you know, who knows about pitching prospects, but, you know, by acclamation was, you know, the top guy in this year's draft. They also lose their fifth rounder, Knicks, who's again supposed to be this great prospect. Like, what is the, what is the strategy there? Um, why is it worth it to them to, you know, to, to not sign the guy? And why is it worth Aiken to say, all right, I'm going to turn it down because I have a reasonable expectation of being the number one or number two draft pick next year. So I believe so much in my elbow, but I also believe so much in that I won't have a bad year, that I won't get hit by a bus, that three other guys won't prove themselves to be better than me. I guess the whole negotiation must have been so poisoned that Aiken and Close turned the deal down, or maybe, I don't know, maybe, what would Close's motivation be? He gets 0% of the $0 that Aiken signed for, would have gotten his percent, whatever it is, 8% of the $5 million, so that's a lot more money. I believe it's about uh, $400,000. And, and you know, I guess Casey Close is thinking that it burnishes his credentials and shows that he'll stick with a guy even if it means taking zero instead of hundreds of thousands but i do think at a certain point you know turning down five million because you wanted six million might not be the smartest choice for some guy with a thin ulnar collateral ligament might not have been the best advising yeah it might not have been platinum package he should have he should have had an agent but again like i think the draft in all sports um teams see it as just this unprecedented opportunity for savings, for cost containment. The NFL players who are beyond their rookie contracts, you often see them getting cut. And you see, you know, the Seahawks relying on so many young guys on low salaries to win the Super Bowl. Um, In the NBA, you see teams losing, you know, the Sixers on purpose just to acquire very cheap rookie contracts. And I think in baseball, you're seeing this as well with these slots and this, you know, opportunity for teams to get cheaper talent. Um, The Thunder and the NBA, they're trying this move that they seem to have come 
um, up with this deal before the draft to take this guy, Josh Eustace, out of Stanford and say, you get guaranteed money for being in the first round, one and a half million dollars. But they have a deal where he's going to turn that down and take like the $25,000 D-League contract um, as a means for the Thunder to save money. And this guy probably wouldn't have been taken in the first round anyway. So he comes to some sort of under the table agreement with them and maybe down the line he'll get his paycheck. But all these teams are just trying to use the draft as a means to, you know, either get around the salary cap or to use, you know, whatever rules are in their disposal just to be under the cap. Right. Well, labor didn't invent the draft. Owners invented the draft and that's working out for them. It is. All right. Uh, In the Wall Street Journal on Sunday, our friend Mr. Jason Gay wrote, this may not have been the most riveting tour de France. At times, it was not even riveting-ish. Jason, let's aim for a riveting-ish segment here. That that may be uh, what we can uh, aspire to. I'm taking to. some heat this morning. I'm taking some heat from some cycling fans. You're being lightly, lightly hazed, I think. So they thought that you were not as they adamant. They sold of- the 2014 tour short, but... The only thing that pains me... You're a journalist. You're not a booster. ...is the suggestion that I don't follow cycling or care about the cycling. Because uh, very often, as you know, I feel like the lonely voice in the wilderness watching the Tour de France and writing about the Tour de France, especially and following Paris-Roubaix and following the Giro d'Italia and following the Vuelta España and following all these sports and caring deeply about it. But yeah. All right. We know, we know you know the names of all the races, Jason. We know that, okay. you, we know that you like cycling. We're not questioning your credentials, um, but so you did well, watch. Why do you hate the Tour de France? <laughs> yeah, that's the question. <laughs> you were you were rewarded this year, uh, Jason, by the sight of English farmers um, yeah. because the Tour de France started in England. They dyed their sheep yellow yeah. to honor the yellow jersey. You also yeah. got to see a whole bunch of crashes, knocked out uh, defending champion Chris Froome, former winner. Alberto Contador, and American contender Andrew Talansky. You yeah. got to see an Italian, Vincenzo Nibali, who won by a staggering seven and a half minutes, and who insists, as every uh, Tour de France champion does, that he did not inject himself or transfuse himself or swallow any kind of serum that's manufactured from the entrails of yellow sheep. So add all of that together, and this seems kind of like a transitional tour. I, I totally back up your statement that this was riveting-ish. Can we, can we make an argument that this is really the end of a previous era, the start of a new era? It doesn't seem that way. It seems like we're kind of still in the purgatory state. Yeah, we are in the purgatory. And, and, and in Nibali's case, I think one of the things that cycling fans felt a little awkward about was that he's riding for Team Astana, which is the Kazakh team that was created for Alexander Vinokurov, who was a very charismatic, very daredevilish rider who was popped for doping in the 2007 tour, uh, retired, kicked out of the sport, then returned to win Olympic gold in 2012. Oof. But Vinokurov is the general manager of Astana, and so you have the sight of Nibali like winning these stages and getting big, huggy embraces from the rogues of the sport. And I think that's a troubling sight for a sport that, like a lot of other sports, is sort of trapped between generations of a, of a, of a youth movement that it feels very optimistic about being clean and a lot of creaky history that it would like to see out the door, or maybe doesn't like to see out the door. I mean, I made the comparison to Mark McGuire being a hitting instructor in Major League Baseball. Maybe it's unfair to expect sports to just completely purge themselves of people who had any, th- any kind of trouble in their past. Is that an unrealistic unreal- thing? 
Um, but just specifically about whether whether or not this was an exciting tour. I mean, there are always great subplots of the tour. There are the races within the race every day. The stage win is you know contested and it's exciting. And you have the sprint stages and you have mountain stages and you have the king of the mountain jersey and the green jersey and all that. But we lost Froome, we lost Conador, we lost Tulansky. These guys were going to give Nibali a run for his money. Nobody emerged to truly push him. I like to say, you know, I'm just old-fashioned like you are, Mike. You know, I, I like to see a little bit of a throwdown for the GC. We didn't get it this year. Seven and a half minutes is the long or the biggest gap since Ulrich in 98. So, not thrilling. Now, to your point about how much the... And by the way, it's funny because you're... Talk about being in between generations. You really wanted to see Contador and Froome, and I think most fans who will tour into, turn into the Tour de France might know those guys' names, but they actually do want to see some guy jump out uh, on a narrow street and cause a huge crash, and they want to see some amazing run at the end, and they want to see the veiny legs of uh, some dude who cycled way too hard. Like, that's, that's the stuff that yeah. makes the Tour de France compelling. Absolutely. I don't think that personalities in this era... I'm not even talking about the average sports fan. I'm talking about some, you know, you're in a bar and it's on. Uh, so you're not necessarily, you're saying the average sports fan doesn't really have any. They don't know any of the guys. in the guy. They'd uh, like a close yeah. match. They'd like to see but a the, guy ride a carbon yeah. frame bike over yeah. a dog. Well, that would be cool. And just the, the spectacle of the Tour de France and the background of the Tour yeah. de France and the people on the roads and just people going all at it. That's what they like. Right. And then I think there's a second level of, uh, of the you know, actual personalities. But I just want to go back to what you say, what you were saying about, you know, being caught between eras and how much do you want to purge the past? Even if cycling, even if most cyclists, let's say, I don't know if this is true. Hey, it's great to play in a clean sport. And certainly the governing bodies say that publicly and they seem to back that up. You know, all the cyclists today came up idolizing someone. And in most cases, those idols are dirty. You're not just going to all throw that away. I mean, they love cycling for a reason. And if the reason, if every impression on you was made by dirty guys, there's definitely a way to compartmentalize that. And so that's why, even though the trend is lamentable, I'm sure that current cyclists know that a part of them says, you know, if I was in that generation, would I certainly not have doped? So it's always going to be much more um, ambivalent than than it is clean. I also think it's technically very difficult. I mean, you take a team like uh, Slipstream Sports, which is the Garmin Sharp team managed by uh, Jonathan Vodders, who was one of the guys who confessed to doping when he was with United States Postal. He was part of the USADA decision. He thinks that it was just, for, for many teams, unrealistic. This was a team that was founded with the idea that they were going to be clean and they were going to be transparent. It was unrealistic at the time they founded it to just build a team of guys who had always been clean. They, just, they didn't exist at yeah. the elite pro tour level. And so when you talk about leadership positions and things like that, can you just find people who have had nothing bad ever happen to them? Is that a reasonable expectation? He doesn't necessarily think so. And you talk to younger riders, a guy like Andrew Talansky, one of the guys he trained with and feels was sort of transformative of his youth, of his, of his early cycling career, uh, was Levi Leipheimer. He trained in Northern California with Levi Leipheimer. Levi Leipheimer, another guy implicated in USADA, confessed to doping early in his career. These guys are in the orbit of the younger guys, and you just have to hope that there's a positive influence there. And I think Levi feels very confident in Andrew and also feels, I think, a certain um, 
gratitude that he's sort of viewed upon as as a respectable writer. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, I think that in fact the opposite of what you said is uh, is true, which is another way of saying I don't agree. <laughs> um, when no, you uh, sign on to the contrapositive, that's fine. When. Uh, when cycling was uh, most popular in the U.S., it was obviously because of Lance Armstrong and his personality and beating cancer. And then to a lesser extent, but still an extent, uh, Floyd Landis and his amazing ride that year when he you know, zoomed past everyone on whatever mountain that was. I'm sure Jason can tell us. Um, and it was all about their you know, grit and fighting spirit and all of the stuff about you know fans running into the street. That's all just part of the atmosphere and part of the scene and what makes the Tour de France fun, fun to watch. But it's not what makes it a sporting event that people, especially in the U.S., care about. And I'm sure that if Andrew Tolansky or, you know, T.J. Van Garderen, who finished fifth, right, um, if yeah. he had won the race this year, I'm sure we would have kind of talked about these qualities that they yeah. possess. And I'm sure we would yeah. have uh, focused more on it here in the U.S. So I think that we're just saying that people watch it for the carbon fiber break running over the dog um, just because of the absence of those sorts of figures from this year's race. And we would have the opposite impression if there were Americans on the podium. Well, yes, an American on the podium. But the I was reacting to the things that were cited as making it lackluster. Yes, a close final would make it lackluster. But a dude from Spain who most Americans don't know and a dude from England who don't most Americans don't know dropping out, even if they were the favorites, I don't think that that has as much as an impact on my imagined Mike, what about a, an American viewer. dog on the podium? Mm, bike bud. All right, let's transition to uh, another part of the Tour de France. On Sunday in Paris, for the first time in 25 years, women cyclists raced the same course as the men. Mariana Voss, the Dutch world and Olympic champion, crossed the finish line first after 13 laps on the Champs-Élysées to win the inaugural La Course by La Tour de France. Another participant in the one-day race was Catherine Bertine. In an article in the New York Times, Juliette Masser quotes Olympic gold medalist Connie Carpenter-Finney as saying that Catherine pretty much single-handedly made this event happen. Catherine is now joining us by phone from England. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. And before we start, Catherine, let me tell a little bit of your backstory, which is totally fascinating. (laughs) You're an ice skater and then a professional triathlete. In 2006, ESPN.com enlisted you to try to become an Olympian. The route you chose was to become a road cyclist. You got dual citizenship from St. Kitts and Nevis to try to make it to the Olympics. Ultimately, fell short, though, in 2008 and 2012. But along the way, you became an activist for women cycling. You made a documentary called Half the Road the documents, the inequalities that top pro athletes face. Did I miss anything there? (laughs) No, I'm really impressed because I've forgotten a lot of that. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Um, But over the years, a lot of people have asked me, and I'm sure even more have asked you, why is there no women's Tour de France, um, at least until this year? So how would you answer that question? Why had there not been a women's race at the Tour de France? Well, you know, that was the question that really spurred me on to this project as well, too. And the answer is that there is no good answer for why we haven't had a women's tour de France. And we did. We had uh, a short run back in the 50s, and then we had another short run of about five years between 84 and 89. Uh, So we did have a shortened tour de France at that point, and then it disappeared. And you know, no one will come forth and say exactly why that happened in terms of, you know, ASO. We believe pretty much that 
at that time, um, toward the late 80s, early 90s, is when the Tour de France really started getting publicity on TV. And so the media shifted all of the focus to the men's side, and the women kind of fell by the wayside. And without any media or sponsorship alignment with, uh, you know, with that kind of broadcast, uh, the women really weren't invested in by the by the powers that be. So it just went away. And I also think at that point we had a little bit of a misogynistic uh, kind of ruling regime over in the UCI. So um, women just weren't considered important in the athletic world of cycling. So just kind of blew up from there. Catherine, it's Jason Gay. I just wanted to ask you about, you know, one of the things with yesterday's race, the Sunday La Course, was that the women's winner, Mariana Voss, she received the same check as the men's winner of the final stage of the Tour de France, but pay disparity is very much a part of women's racing. And can you talk a little bit about that incredible inequity? Absolutely. It's uh, it's pretty flabbergasting. It's not, uh, you know, it, it isn't just the fact that we don't have a Tour de France for women or we didn't have one. It's the fact that the races where we did have an opportunity to race, say Tour of Flanders, uh, the men were taking home about 70,000 euro, and the women were taking home about $1,500. So it's just this incredible discrepancy that shouldn't be there. And, there, again, there's no good reason for it. You know, the, the race promoters or sponsors will say, well, you know, we, we just don't have the investment on the women's side, or they'll throw out all of these outdated excuses. So nothing really good stands up as an argument. Uh, we should have that kind of pay. And I think once the public knows about that, there's going to be a little bit more of an outrage. Why do you think that there is, that is road racing of the types of bicycle racing that there's uh, no or few women events, whereas with the, uh, the velo events, uh, more women participate. There are more uh, sanctioned events. Right. I think the answer there lies in tradition. And in so many ways, tradition is, is fantastic. You know, it's what gives us our heritage. In other ways, tradition can be really outdated, and I think that's where the cycling, the road cycling world falls victim. You know, great, 100 years of the Tour de France, that's fantastic, until we peel back the layer and say, wait a minute, where are the women? So I think what we've been up against is this idea that, uh, you know, that history should just continue on as it has been without opening the doors for change. And you see that a little bit differently in, say, uh, the newer areas of women's cycling, like... Uh, I mean, not so new in track cycling, but mountain biking and BMX racing, those sports have a lot more parity than the road racing side. And I, if, you, if you think about it from a sociological standpoint, it has to be the tradition is, is a big factor. You're in the race yesterday <laughs> on Sunday. What do you see when you're in the, in the pack? And like, what are your, your memories from you know, being involved in this, uh, in this event? asking that because that gives me a minute to kind of, you know, uh, recollect what yesterday really, really was for me. And it was incredible. I mean, the first memories are, of course, the fact that we're racing. So you kind of turn on your race brain and, and what you see is, or what, you're, what you should see is, you know, everybody who's in front of you and you're paying attention to the tactics and to the, the race that's unfolding. But at the same time, uh, one of the great things about the course yesterday was that we had um, about four long straightaway stretches. And that's where, you know, you can kind of look around for a second 
and you see all these amazing spectators, you know, lining the river, lining the Champs-Élysées, uh, in the center of the, of the, the town. I mean, it was just unbelievable. We could hear the spectators everywhere. And believe me, they weren't cheering for women cycling. They were cheering for cycling and for great racing. And that stood out to me, like the level of excitement that these fans had for the sport. So there's Just that. for the nerds out there, Catherine, how uh, bumpy are those cobbles? And did you get in the gutter there <laughs> up against the curb at all? You know, that's a great question. So the cobbles, um, I think everybody had played up the cobbles so much, like they were going to be these, like, stones of death. And... I'm really glad people did that because when we finally got onto them, it was like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. <laughs> but I will say this: at the same time, there was a bad section on the—I can't call it a descent, but on a kind of a downhill grade that we have um, on that one stretch there. There was a really big rough patch. There were a lot of bottles that went flying um, over some of the the cobbles, and unfortunately, that's where I encountered a flat tire as well. So that part, uh, that, was, that was definitely tough. But I wouldn't say that overall the cobbles were, were horrible. I think they made the race really exciting. So ideally, how would, if this thing becomes entrenched, how would it work? Would it be, you know, you'd go a day after the men during the Tour de France? I mean, you'd be obviously be going different speeds. And do you think you should be going the same distances? Yeah, great question. I think that the best way for the for this to succeed is a similar model to what we saw in the 80s, even though we didn't see it, but from what all the women and the participants, you know, say back then, uh, we should actually race on the same day, but start two to three hours beforehand. Uh, it's okay to shorten the, the distance in terms of so that the men and the women don't overlap, but the women aren't all that much slower, uh, but there are, you know, differences in the peloton size. And on that note, a lot of people feel like, you know what, instead of shortening, you know, the, the women's race, why not shorten the men's race and make it a little bit more exciting from that end? So, uh, you know, we kind of have to adjust our thinking and say, hey, what, what can we do? You know, what can we go, go out and change for the better? And uh, physiologically, the women can definitely do the same distances as the men, but we do have to create an infrastructure in our sport that can sustain a three-week tour. Because right now, you know, the women's side of the Peloton doesn't have the budget for, say, the the chefs and the, you know, multi-million dollar trailers and, you know, that kind of caravan. So we need that in place in order to have a, you know, a secure three-week tour. But physically, absolutely, we can do it. I want to just ask you quickly about uh, Mariana Voss, who won yesterday's La Course and... This was something I wrote about the other day in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, when people talk about the best athletes in the world, and when people talk especially about the greatest cyclists in the world, it's a slam dunk case. Marianne Voss is the best or the greatest cyclist currently in the world. When you consider her multidiscipline championships, this is somebody who has won Olympic gold on the track, Olympic gold on the road. She is a seven-time cyclocross off-road cycling champion. She can do it on the hills. She can do it in the mountains. She can do it in a sprint as she did yesterday. Just a remarkable athlete, but you know her also as an advocate, and that's just such a, a cool thing that we seldom see in sports, it seems, where the iconic athlete, the superstar, the person who gets most of the attention is also such a force for change. Exactly. I can't tell you. I mean, 
I have so much respect for Mariana, not just as an athlete, but as a person. I've been lucky enough to, you know, be able to call her my friends now through the advocacy and the work that we've done. And this woman is just so genuine. She is humble, maybe humble to a fault, <laughs> but the rest of us will sing her praises for her. She is a phenomenal athlete. Like you said, her credentials and her accolades are outstanding. And uh, and she's so young, you know, she's mid twenties. So she, her yeah. future in this sport, she's just going to keep on thriving. And it's yeah. my goal to personally tell the rest of the world about her uh, and to have her as a role model is, is so great. We emulate her. We look up to her. We all want to beat her. And, you know, she, she also shows that she, she can be beaten and she's very, you know, humble toward her competitors as well. So she's just an all around champion and, our sport so much for the better for having her. Catherine, let me finish up by asking, what do we know about 2015? Um, and is there a concern? You know, mm-hmm. we talked about the hypothetical of um, women doing the whole whole course, but is there a concern yes. that um, the powers that be in cycling will be like, all right, we've given them this and that's enough? Yeah, that's such a great question because we. this is actually the most critical time right now after this first event because we have to keep the pressure on and show the world and show ASO that, hey, this is a great year one, but we can do more and we want more. And I actually think that ASO, you know, given the success of yesterday, I think they will come around to granting us a stage race. I think a stage race can be in place by next year. A full three weeks, not immediately, but there's no reason that we can't have one week next year, build it up to 10 to 14 days in the next three years, and then take it from there. Catherine, thanks so much. Congratulations and best of luck going forward. Guys, thank you. Thanks for having us on to, you know, to talk about this, uh, this sport. It really helps move everything forward. Really appreciate it. Catherine Bertine is a cyclist, a writer, and the director of the documentary Half the Road. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, I went to qualifying for the City Open over the weekend. That's the pro tennis tournament in D.C. On the men's side, there were six spots available in the main draw to players who made it through the qualifying tournament. Uh, that was the plan initially, at least. But at the last minute, the number three seed, Grigor Dimitrov, pulled out. He was sick. So that meant the one player who lost in the qualifying, Sam Groth of Australia, was granted a reprieve. He got a spot in the main draw. In tennis terminology, this player is known as the lucky loser. And that's yeah. a phrase that I really love. Loser is just not enough to capture what you are. You have to modify it with an ad- adjective that also indicates you're undeserving. You're an undeserving loser. Jason, what is your lucky loser? David Ortiz, Tampa Bay Rays. The dispute continues. Uh, yesterday, Ortiz, three-run home run to give the Red Sox the victory. Rays taking exception to the bat toss. Afterwards, Ortiz had a little bit to say, but his initial salvo was something that I just loved and I would like to see in sports Quite frankly, I'd like to see in every public arena uh, happen more often, which was asked for his reaction to the Rays' reaction. Ortiz said, whatever, dude. It would just be a more pleasant place, certainly a funnier place, certainly a less confrontational place, maybe a little less hot on the hot takey front. If players, if sports media, if these traditional antagonists would learn once in a while to not lock horns and merely say, whatever, dude. Whatever, dude. (laughs) Whatever, dude, indeed. If he had had whatever, dude, emblazoned on his bat 
and then yeah. just handed it to the Rays pitcher, that would have just <laughs> solved all the problems. Yeah. So, Mike, what is your lucky loser? So, my lucky loser is Mike Francesa. Well, it's not really Mike Francesa, but uh, last week he was discussing what Tony Dungy said about Michael Sam. And to recap, Tony Dungy had said, I wouldn't have drafted Michael Sam. Michael Sam's going to be a distraction. And then the next day or a couple days later, after a kerfuffle, he clarified and says, don't think I don't like gay people. And Michael Sam certainly deserves a chance. So Tony Dungy was saying, Michael Sam deserves a chance, but I wouldn't have been the one to give him that chance. So Mike Francesa defended Tony Dungy. He's saying we were all stupid to think that Tony Dungy was homophobic in any way and that everything Tony Dungy was saying was true. Now remember, what Tony Dungy said was he was going to be a distraction and I wouldn't have drafted him. And much of the criticism was, why wouldn't you have drafted him? All right, here we go. He seems like a qualified football player. He's the 249th player picked. What other guy who's the 249th player picked is a story? Okay. He's a story. So then how is he wrong? He was wrong because he said he wouldn't have drafted him. So the commentaries, Slam and Dungy, are so dumb it doesn't make sense. He is different. He is a story. That's not what Dungy said. Dungy said he was a distraction. And yes, in some ways he is a distraction if you want orderly football because how many 249th picks have press conferences when they arrive? Not many. That doesn't mean you shouldn't draft them. And national media following them. Wait, Mike, aren't you national media? Anyway. And when they wanted to have a TV show about him, the other players were mad. But the TV show never happened. When they wanted to have a reality show about his training camp, the other players said, wait a second. So, yes, Tony's right. No, Tony's wrong. That can't have been a distraction because it never happened. The fact that you're hearing sound bites about the 249th player picked in the draft is exactly what Tony was talking about. That's inexact. Tony was talking about not drafting him. How dumb are people? Oh, he's not a, he's not a distraction. He's not different. He's not different. You talking about him makes him different. But you're talking about him. And the question is not, was he different? The question is, is he a distraction? And should you not draft him? Just answer the question. Who was the 248th player picked? Ahmad Dixon! What team is he on? What position does he play? The Cowboys! Strong safety! It's like when Tebow showed up. He showed up on a private jet and had walked into a massive press conference as a backup quarterback. And people say, oh, he's just a backup quarterback. Oh, really? How many backup quarterbacks come on their own jet? But Dungy liked Tebow! Why was the 249th player getting an ESPY? He won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award! Because he has courage. How many times has the seventh round pick gone up and got an SP? You want to line them up for me? Well, actually, a couple six round picks have won an SP. Terrell Davis, Tom Brady, and Kurt Warner won an SP. And he wasn't even drafted. But I suppose your point is, does this guy deserve an SP? How could an award given before training camp starts be a distraction to training camp? 
We know what's going on here. What are we, stupid all of a sudden? But when somebody says it, it gets attacked. I'm starting to feel a little stupid. And Tony was just saying, I don't want that in my camp. Well, you know what? He's not. He's allowed to say that. That doesn't mean he's anti-gay. That doesn't mean he's anti-Michael Sam. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. He was making a statement of fact. In fact, not a fact. More of an opinion. That camp is not normal when you have national media and national television and people holding press conference for a seventh round rookie. That's different. There's only one more thing left to say, and that's for you to tell me I'm lost. I'm lost. Oh, I'm not paying attention. That's how they get me. All right. Back after this. Josh, what's your lucky loser? Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, I've got to credit Hang Up listener Stephen Bowman for this lucky loser. He wrote to me to say he was driving through New York State. He went past the site of the former Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital, looked it up, found a strange sports connection there, as one does. Uh, he passed it along to me. The rest of the credit for this afterball goes to James E. Overmeyer, who wrote an article for Nine, a journal of baseball history and culture, called Baseball for the Insane, the Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital and its Asylums. So all the information I'm about to tell you comes from that article. It's a fantastic piece of scholarship. We'll link to it on our uh, show page on Slate. So uh, Dr. Selden Haynes Talcott, he was the superintendent of this hospital, Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital. He believed that the physical means for recuperating the worn and wasted systems of the insane may be stated in three words. And those words obviously were heat, milk, and rest. In addition to the classic heat-milk-rest combo, Dr. Talcott believed in the healing power of baseball. In 1888, the mental hospital started a team that included some patients and staff and players from the area. It became known as the Asylum Nine, the Asylums for short. Uh, 19th century America was still America. And so, of course, the Asylums wanted to win. That meant bringing in ringers, Players who, as Overmeyer writes in his article, conveniently qualified for non-medical attendant jobs at the hospital. One of those players was future Hall of Famer Jack Chesborough. He got his start with the asylums in the 1890s. He later, with the New York Highlanders in 1904, went on to set one of the unbreakable records in baseball history, throwing 48 complete games in a uh, single season. So among the teams the asylums played, uh, Overmeyer writes in his article, was a women's barnstorming club called the Black Stockings. The Asylums beat the women's team 36 to 12. The Middletown Press noted Fish Launt, they had a player named Fish Launt, uh, created much merriment by sliding into the bases on two occasions. Result, two pairs of black stockings shot up over the air and their wearers sat down real hard. The Asylum's most common opponent, though, was a club called the Cuban Giants, who Overmeyer describes as the first fully professional African-American team. They also played several games against the New York Giants of the National League. Uh, the Asylums lost 4-3 to three in 1891 and then twice more by one run in 1892. Uh, Overmeyer writes, now I'm quoting from his article, that by 1890, the Asylums had progressed to the point where the size of the crowd was important for more than reasons of morale. It became necessary to subsidize the team, which was now paying the players, who were not hospital employees, $5 per game. The asylums played nearly all their games at home on the front lawn of the hospital because road games obviously had little therapeutic effect for the confined patients. 
To cover expense, the hospital administration began charging 25 cents a fee to men, although ladies were admitted free. They also offered season tickets for the big asylums fans. Um, But by the mid-1890s, minor league baseball was on the rise. The asylum's best players, including Jack Chesborough, were signed away by professional teams. At the same time, the Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital was forced by the state to take on more patients. Baseball-based therapy fell by the wayside. The hospital stayed open, though, for 100 more years, more than 100 more years. It was finally closed by New York State in 2006. Um, I'd like to end, though, with a quote from Dr. Talcott, the founder of the baseball team. In 1893, he wrote, We Americans do not know how to play. If in England, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Here, with our exciting climate and hurried ways of living, it too frequently makes him a lunatic. Words to live by in these modern times. Uh, Thanks again to Stephen Bowman and James Overmeyer for his excellent article, Baseball for the Insane. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts and leave us a comment and a rating, please. It would be very helpful. Become a fan of uh, the Hang Up and Listen podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thanks to Jason Gay for filling in for Stefan this week. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Bolo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Members Elmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.